Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Today is another conversation on Alexander G. Clark, and my special guest is Kent Sissel. When it comes to Alexander G. Clark, possibly no one has done more to preserve his name, his history, and his legacy than Kent Sissel. In the late 70s, Kent made a decision to purchase Clark's home in order to save it from demolition from the city of Muscatine, Iowa. It is my great honor to have him on the show today to talk about that decision and to talk about Alexander G. Clark. Kent, welcome to the show and thank you very much for, for taking your time and talk to me about Alexander G. Clark. Thank you for inviting me. Because the last time when I was in Muscatine, we got a chance to chit-chat and you gave me a tour of the Alexander Clark house, but we did not get a chance to sit down and kind of dive into it right. a little bit deeper right. on who this man was. We'll get that done. That's what we tried to do today. So who was Alexander Clark for people who don't know this man? Who was he and why is he important? Well, if I could put that into a few sentences, you wouldn't have a show, but I can't. Alexander Clark is a very complex situation. I don't know whether he was a complex man, but it's a complex situation that he grew up in and that he lived in and that he practiced his patriotism in. Uh, Alexander Clark was a black man who was born in Washington, Pennsylvania uh, in 1826. His parents were Rebecca Darns Clark and her husband, John Clark. Rebecca was the daughter of George Darns and his wife, Leticia, or Leticia, or Lisi Darns, mm. three different names. The Darns family, uh, I'm going to assume uh, George Darns and his wife, Leticia, settled in Washington, Pennsylvania in the 1790s. They had a home there. They were free, free black people. Whether they had ever been slaves or not, I cannot tell you. I'm somewhat inclined to believe that perhaps they were not slaves. It's possible also that they were freed slaves. Rebecca Darn had a brother by the name of William, William Darn. That was Rebecca's brother? That was William Darn's was Rebecca Darn's Clark's brother. So was Alexander Clark's uncle. William was Alexander Clark's uncle. Correct. Alexander Clark was born in Washington, Pennsylvania, and he lived there for 13 years with his with his family. Alexander Clark's grandfather, George Darns, died in 1820, so he died before Alexander Clark was born. But Alexander Clark's father, from information that I was able to find when I was doing research in Washington, Pennsylvania, had been the founder of a black school in Washington, Pennsylvania, and was also the founder of the AME Church in Washington, Pennsylvania, mm. one of the founders. So he was the founder of the African-American Episcopal Church. And those two items are important. There's a third item that comes up later 
in that the Darns family, William Darns, was a member of Prince Hall Masonry. Ooh. Prince Hall Masonry is the Black Masonic Order, and that was that was founded in about 1776-77 uh, in Philadelphia by a black man whose name was Prince Hall. The black soldiers or black uh, officers were not allowed to join the white Masonic order. So he started his own. Wow. And He's... brought a, a charter from England to the United States so it could be uh, a recognized Masonic order. So those three things, the, the school or education, the church, the AME church, and Prince Hall Masonic Order play an important role in who the family was, but more so what Alexander G. Clark took on as his life work. So there is the social part. Economically, the most important thing that anyone who was new to this continent could do was to invest in real estate. George Darns had invested in real estate. His son, William Darns, Alexander's uncle, as well as Alexander Clark, all invested in real estate mm. because it was a way that you could make money and acquire wealth and support your other activities. So it seems like his uncle was a huge influence in him. Uh, I think his uncle was a very big influence. Because I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at all these three things you just mentioned. It seems like Alexander Clark ended up kind of copying and using those the same things from the church to education and Masonic and even barbering. And even barbering. Because William, William Darns taught Alexander Clark the barbering trade and probably made sure that Alexander Clark got more education. You know, and I, and I say part of that because if you read the various biographies of Alexander G. Clark, there is sort of this underlying thread that seems to indicate that, well, maybe he wasn't so well educated. Well, maybe he really wasn't all that smart. Maybe he didn't really have advantages that other kids his age would have had. And I think that's all wrong. But that's from my perspective. Can I prove it? Well, you know, the only proof I've got that the family, the Clark family, or the Darns family had some money is that in the 1880 census uh, and ta tax rolls of Washington County for Letitia Darns, Alexander Clark's grandmother, someone where it shows the tax rate and the taxes due and paid, someone has penciled in mansion in parentheses wow and what year is this 1820 that was the year uh, that george darns passed away and there was there was a legal issue dealing with some money and that ended up in the supreme court of pennsylvania you know so they were used to, they were used to dealing with the courts yeah so the background you know we are all the product of our background and Alexander G. Clark was the product of his background. It was, it, I think it was, I'm not going to say it was a privileged background, but it may have been a little bit better than most. Yeah, because he was exposed to some of these things by the time he came to Iowa. Right. The other thing that he was exposed to was discrimination. When he was 13, he went to live with his uncle in Cincinnati. His two cousins uh, either 
who may have been younger than he was at that point, eventually went to Oberlin College. In Ohio? Oberlin. In Ohio. Was that one of the biggest abolitionist college? Yes, it was. Okay. As I remember, and, and I may have this wrong, it, it's easy to check. I think Oberlin had a, operated a school in Cincinnati. My guess is that all three of the kids, Alexander G. and his two cousins, probably went to the school in Cincinnati that was operated by Oberlin. But Alexander Clark left Cincinnati when he was probably 15 years old. The records say he stayed in uh, Ohio for three years, but he moved to Muscatine when he was 16. He settled here. My guess is he probably was on the river for at least one season, Mm. working on a riverboat, getting to know people, and uh, becoming more socialized with white people and black people. He was doing that for at least a year. So maybe he maybe he left Pennsylvania earlier than 13. Maybe he didn't live three years with his uncle. Mm. These are facts we simply don't know. You know, it's written with these various dates, but there is no proof of any of that. By the time he was 16, he had been on the Mississippi River going north and south from Cincinnati to New Orleans and back and probably even perhaps coming up to Muscatine. We don't know that, but it's possible. At that age of 16, I don't know if that was normal in 19th century for young boys that age to move to different places on their own. I believe that when we come to the part of the story with Alexander Clark settling in Muscatine, I think that has to do with two issues. The first issue is Alexander Clark was from Washington, Pennsylvania, and there were a number of families from Washington, Pennsylvania, who ultimately settled in Muscatine and or directly across the river uh, in Rock Island and Mercer County, Illinois. Oh, so he knew some people. He knew people before he ever got here. Okay. That makes sense, because that was my next question. Why Muscatine? Okay. But he also was living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where George Darns, or I'm sorry, William Darns, was a property owner, a land investor, and a well-known barber, philanthropist, educator. All the things Alexander Clark ended up doing in the Muscatine. Right. William Darns, when he moved to Cincinnati from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where he lived before that, he was known in Pittsburgh as a relatively wealthy man who had invested strongly in real estate and was involved in the Masonic Lodge, Prince Hall Lodge, in in Pittsburgh. So he took his knowledge that he had gained when he moved to Cincinnati to start a barbering business, you know, he was moving to the center of black culture and the struggle of slavery and abolitionists. He also married a woman by the name of Rebecca, who was from Kentucky Mm. and lived right across the river from Ohio. Uh, We're talking about William, William Darn? We're talking about William. Okay, Alexander Clark's uncle. Alexander Clark's uncle. So we've got William in 
A prominent man is Alexander Clark's uncle, well-known within the community and probably a friend of another man and family members from Washington, Pennsylvania, the Reynolds. The Reynolds, who were the Reynolds? Yeah. The Reynolds are my mother's family. Oh. When we were in Washington, Pennsylvania, doing some research, we were also researching them, trying to figure out some local tradition, local verbal history that I'll get into a little bit later. So we think that it's entirely possible. We, meaning my brother and I, since we were the ones doing the research, we believe strongly that it is completely likely that Alexander Clark, when he got to Cincinnati, may have become familiar with the Reynolds. It's quite likely that he knew Dr. Eli Reynolds from Washington, Pennsylvania. Dr. Eli moved from Washington County to Cincinnati? Dr. Eli Reynolds more than likely was in Cincinnati from time to time. He had a brother-in-law. I'm going to call it, he had a brother-in-law and or a, a nephew who was whose name was Reynolds Drury. Three Dr. Eli Reynolds siblings married three Drury siblings. And eventually, they all ended up in Illinois, Rock Island, Mercer County, directly across the river from Muscatine. Reynolds Drury owned one of the most important docking and shipping locations on the Mississippi at a little town called Drury's Landing. Reynolds Drury held financial accounts because of shipping produce and other goods to Cincinnati, St. Louis, and New Orleans. Reynolds Drury was known as a wealthy merchant who made accounts in these cities and visited them on occasion. It is entirely possible that those relationships coincided and created a friendship so that Alexander Clark may have known the Reynolds or the Drury's or the Reynolds Drury's. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were all living here. Mm. It makes that sense. That does then. make sense then if you give any credence to oral history within the black community that was passed on to me that when Alexander Clark first settled in the Muscatine area, he lived with Dr. Eli Reynolds mm. at Drury's Landing. Mm, mm, mm. The dots are there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that this is the only dot connection you can make along the way. There may be other families, but we know that that Alexander Clark knew these people. Yeah, because I'm thinking if he, Alexander Clark moved to Muscatine and he was already a barber, and he was a friend with Dr. Renard. That could be the first person who was cutting hair. And he I could don't be think, introduced I, to other people. I don't think that he started cutting hair right away. There was, already, there was already a barber or two in Muscatine, and the population wasn't very big. Mm. I think what he did, you know, because we, he's so well-known for selling uh, wood to the steamboats, you know, and supposedly, you know, one of the things would indicate that that's where he made his money. But you can't, 
you can't be a farmer, a barber, a uh, activist. Act, you can't do all of these things at the same time. It's mm-hmm. impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we know for a fact that when Alexander Clark first settled in this area, and I'm saying this area because we don't know that he came directly to Muscatine right away. But we know one of the first things he did in Muscatine was operate a shop on 2nd Street. He was selling dried, dried fruits and vegetables. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I did not know The that. only place he would have been able to get comestibles like that is from Reynolds Drury and his trading post across the river at Drury's Landing, which is where Dr. Eli Reynolds was living at that point. Then you have to add into that whole mix that Dr. Eli Reynolds was a member of the territorial legislation, uh, legislature for the territory of Iowa. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's before we ever state he was part of the first, the first territorial, uh, territorial legislature. He knew people. He just knew people. And at the same time, Dr. Eli Reynolds was founding towns in Illinois, like New Boston, Illinois, um, and he worked with a young surveyor whose name was Abraham Lincoln. Uh-oh, you're getting deep now. Uh-oh. Abraham Lincoln did the survey for New Boston, Illinois. And Dr. Reynolds knew Lincoln. Yes. Because Eli Reynolds founded New Boston. I need to say Dr. Eli Reynolds founded New Boston. You think through that probably Alexander Clark met Lincoln? I see no reason that he would not have. Hmm. We don't have proof of that. So I'll let let you. I I think think there's a huge possibility, though. Wow. I think there's I think there's a possibility. Yeah. We don't know what sort of traveling uh, Alexander Clark might have done with Dr. Reynolds. We know that in order for Dr. Reynolds to be part of the Iowa territorial legislature, he had to have a residence in Iowa. After founding New Boston, he then founded a little town on the Iowa side of the Mississippi called Geneva. Geneva was directly across the river from Drury's Landing. And there was a ferry that went back and forth. So Dr. Eli Reynolds owned property in Muscatine County, and but also lived in Muscatine County and across the river at Drury's Landing. He could have come across the river anytime he wanted. That's how Alexander Clark got into Muscatine, probably the ferry. I don't know when... Alexander Clark bought his first house. We do know that in 1848, he bought a house, a 20-room house. This goes back to the fact that, do you think he made money or had money? <laughs> he bought a 20-room house. It was a duplex. <laughs> you, you figured that out, if the, guy, if the guy had the money or not. Yeah, but that gets to be another story. And I'm losing track of where I wanted to go with all of this. <laughs> which, 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 which that's good, because, I mean, we can even go to that 20-room house. That's the house you own right now. Uh, this is, 
it's the house it the house that I live in uh, is Alexander Clark's house, but this house was built in 1878. After the first the one, the first house out. that he bought in 1848 was a, a painted clapboard house. That one was burned down, supposedly, perhaps, by arsonists, and he rebuilt the brick house that I live in on the same footprint as White Frame House, except this house is solid masonry. It is as fireproof as anything could ever be. How did you end up buying this house? What attracted you to it? And you say, you know what, I want to live right here. Because you were not living in Muscatine at that time, were you? No, no, I wasn't. Uh, I was on the faculty at Michigan State University at that point. I have two degrees from the University of Iowa. When I finished my undergraduate degree and started my master's, I went from business to design. I'm old enough that when I was in school at that point, you could, uh, especially for a master's degree, you could design your own program. So Mm -hmm. I designed my own educational program, and I was studying all sorts of design, architectural design, environmental design, environmental psychology, interior design, jewelry design, art history, and it all kind of led to an interest in architecture. My master's thesis was the octagon form in 19th century domestic architecture of Iowa. About that time, I think before my thesis, my master's thesis was finished, which would have been in 68, I was asked to participate in a driving tour looking at houses around Muscatine Mm. by a ladies' uh, study group. This was fortnightly, and I agreed that I would go on this driving tour. We would photograph buildings. We drove past this house that was built practically on the sidewalk at the corner of West 3rd Street and Chestnut in Muscatine, Iowa. And I said, you know, I've always had a great appreciation for this house. It's difficult to say that it is architecturally significant because it represents a a federalist style, which is mid to late 19th century. And I said, but it's typical of East Coast architecture. If you drive through Pennsylvania, you see houses of this design everywhere. So the house itself was was only outstanding from the sense that it was big, it was well-designed, and it had some interesting Italianate design ornamentation added to the house, primarily uh, double brackets under the eaves and the bay windows. But a woman in the car with us, whose last name was Bartenhagen, first name was Mabel, Mabel Bartenhagen, said, oh, that's the ambassador's house. And all of the women said, what? At that time with you, have you ever heard Alexander Clark? I had never heard about Alexander Clark. In fact, we didn't even know who the ambassador was at that stage of the game. Mm. And I said, you know, it's very interesting and it's a great house. You know, it is a historic house. There's no doubt about that. It's like a lot of other properties. Yeah. And what year was this, 1968? 1968. That was the year I also went to Penn State. Okay. I just came home for the for the summer after finishing my master's thesis. So then you say, okay, that's an interesting house, but let's let's keep moving on. It was it was a few years later that I got a telephone call or a letter from a couple of people in Muscatine 
telling me that the house was the home of Alexander G. Clark, who actually had been the ambassador, I'm not going to say ambassador with a small a, because we didn't have ambassadors at this point. Uh, we had uh, ministers. Alexander G. Clark built the house, and he was the man who was best known within the black community. And my res- I guess my response would have been, you know, I'm, it's nice to know that I don't know that I have any use for that information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Little did I know. Yeah. And so then it came up that the federal government was interested in building uh, a HUD apartment for the elderly on the property where the Alexander T. Clark house stood and that all of the properties in that block were going to be, that half block, were going to be destroyed. About the same time, a woman from Cedar Rapids by the name of Bertine Motley apparently was doing some research on her husband's side of the family and discovered that an early ancestor of her husband had been a small a ambassador to Haiti. And in the process of doing that, got a list of the ambassadors of Haiti, discovered Alexander Clark. Alexander Clark had been appointed, and then but he turned it down. Her husband's ancestor had been the ambassador to Haiti. She found Alexander Clark's name, and at the same time, there was an article in the Des Moines Register about the house being torn down for the high-rise. Okay, now, I was not living in Muscatine at that time, so I, I didn't have any idea of all of the fuss and drama that was going on around this house until much later. But a decision was made. City council spent hours and hours and hours debating the, what to do with this because they didn't really want to tear it down, but they didn't have, there was no option of what could happen to it. They couldn't delay the high-rise project. They finally offered to sell the property to an organization that Bertine had founded, the Alexander G. Clark Museum Association and the Alexander G. Clark Historical Society. Uh, they sold it to her for a dollar. The only thing was she had to get it moved. Oh, that got the city out of a bind. It put her in a bind, put the State Historical Society in a bind, but the city was clear. <laughs> they just wanted that property to be moved somewhere else so they can... Yes, yeah. So ultimately, arrangements were made to move the house across Chestnut Street and up two lots to where it now resides. Uh, I tell people who are looking at the house, if facing the front of the house, if they look up at the second floor, left-hand side of the house, you can see the original street sign. Mm-hmm. I saw There's it. a blue and white enamel panel that says 3rd Street, and on the side it says Chestnut. Chestnut, yeah. So there's no doubt where the house was located. The house was moved here. That's another story. How did you get involved? Because now the house got, got moved. Were you part of the people who moved the house to there? The Alexander Clark Historical Society ran into a great deal of difficulty. Their abilities were in the wrong place. They, they didn't have the ability to do this. They were doing it all on very short notice, yeah, under a great deal of pressure, and they just weren't able to make it work. Mm. They had a grant from the State Historical Society. They had a grant from American Bicentennial Commission of something like, I think, $40,000, which turns out was never awarded. It was never funded. 
they had to cut back on all of the bicentennial activities in the country for lack of funds, and including the Alexander Clark House. At that point, Iowa State legislator, Legislature was just really tired of hearing the name Alexander Clark and Bertine Motley. Mm-hmm. And they were getting really irritated with the historical society because the historical society wasn't able to do a whole lot. So it was all these people passing the buck and responsibility. Yeah, we should really save that, but uh, but don't count, don't ask me. Yeah, we don't have money for it. Yeah, I got a call. I was doing so. I just happened to be doing some contract work for the state historical society when all of this happened, and I got a call from the then director of the uh, historic preservation department for the state of Iowa, Adrian Anderson, saying, "You know, you got to help us. We got to do something. Why don't you buy the house?" And my response was, I don't have the money to do that. I'm just a recent graduate <laughs> of college. <laughs> you know, at that point, I'd, I'd been teaching for about four years, I guess. Were you teaching in Muscatine or were you teaching in Michigan? I taught some at Penn State. I taught at Florida State. Okay. And then I uh, came back to Iowa and eventually went to Michigan State. So you just you, I, you just had a teacher salaries, not like you were loaded. Yeah, right. No, and the money that, that people were willing to put into this was hardly enough to do this. But mm-hmm. at one point, you know, I came down and I looked at it, and for some reason, you know, I just had this sense, you know, something's got to happen here. You know, this is going to be a really expensive project, but someday it's going to be important. So I agreed to do it, and there goes the rest of my life. So you ended up purchasing the house, and you've been living there since, what, 1971? Uh, well, it took—no, I, I didn't move into this side of the house. It took five years to stabilize the house and get the first two apartments done mm. because there were no utilities to the house, no sewer, no water, no gas— it was just a derelict shell. Oh, boy. So it's not just like and, you had to buy the house. You had to bring it up to the code. Yeah, absolutely. And in order to buy the house, I had to pay the mover for moving the house, which took a great part of the money that was available to do the project. Mm-hmm. But I had committed myself, so I just kept going. Yeah. And uh, if you ask me today whether it was all worth it, on a good day, I'll say, absolutely it was. And on a bad day, I'll say, no way in hell. <laughs> <laughs> so emotions can be high or emotions, emotions can, can be low. low. Yeah, you, you, you're right about that. But uh, I, I think that's a, that's one thing, actually, from historical perspective, we need to recognize because there's very, very high chance if you did not make that move, that house would not be there. And probably the history of Alexander Clark will be uh, it more. Was going to be. It was going to be torn down. The Alexander Clark Historical Society was given an ultimatum by the City Council of Iowa. They could sell it or they could tear it down, but they could no longer own the property. And that that's why there was this real, you know, push to find somebody to buy the property. From my perspective, there were all these promises of help and assistance until the day I signed the line. Nobody and then everybody that. disappeared. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, boy. You know, How discouraging that can be. Well, you know, I was young then, so it didn't bother me. But everybody pretty much just cut ties with it and waited in the background. And if anybody wanted to know what happened to it, 
the answer always was, well, you know, Kent Sissel took that over, so it's going to be okay. Thanks for doing that, Kent, because, I mean, that's that's one <laughs> part you. of preserving the history, because if that house will be gone, I'm sure that Alexander Clark history also would be chipped away. Nobody would know it. So, uh, if it thank you very if, much. If it hadn't been for a group of women in Virginia who wanted to preserve Mount Vernon, it would have been destroyed. Most significant historic properties go through the same sequence because the question is, what can you use them for? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it still costs you right now a lot of money to maintain that home. Yeah, yeah of course it does. Do you get any help from society or historical society or is always still coming no, out of your pocket? No, just, just from friends who come over and help me when I need to do something. So what, what can we I do as, as, as history lovers? What can we do to help ease the pain? Well, you know, one of the things we've talked about doing, I, I do have a foundation and I've got a, a board. You know, we've got members who help do certain things. You know, we sponsor Alexander Clark Lecture Series every year in February around the 25th, which is Alexander Clark's birthday. That's handled by Muscatine Community College. And there are other events. It's built. It's been building over time. But I think we're at a point where we will be discussing shortly having a summit and inviting all of the people who have ever been involved one way or another in speaking about the Alexander Clark House or Alexander Clark Project. We're going to pull everybody together and just say, what should we do now? Mm-hmm. Because I'm out of it. Yeah. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to have to sell it so that I can support the rest of my life. Yeah. And if you want it to be important and you want to find a use for it, then let's do that. Yeah. If not, just let me back out and let take, nature take its out. course. Yeah. Because, I mean, you've been in there for 40 years? I've been here for 40 years, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think anybody who, I don't know, this is just something just pop up in my mind right now. Anybody who wants to write a book or anything on Alexander Clark, at least a huge portion of the fund should go back to that house. I don't know. That's well, my they, opinion. They can actually go to the foundation. Yeah, go to the foundation, which is going to support sure. the house. Which, right. Yeah. Right. And that supports me in the house. Yeah. I so, think I think that's that's my opinion. But we need to figure we need to figure out the pathway to those things. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the ideas have always been there to do these things, but we need to figure out the pathways. And, yeah, uh, and that's a whole separate project. That that's just the preservation of the legacy of Alexander Clark. The Alexander Clark project is simply a project to preserve the legacy of a an Iowa equal rights pioneer. And that included all the information I gathered and it was given to me and the house. That was the purpose of all of this. And we've kind of done it. So now what? Mm-hmm. What do we want to do with this? It needs to be preserved for black history. It needs to be preserved for Iowa history. Because Iowa was such a prominent state in political activity and especially equality. And Alexander Clark played huge part of that. He did. He played just a huge part. Right. Man, that was Kent Sissel. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation. Thank you for listening to Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>